This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, it's really good to see you here. I have one question, just out of sheer curiosity. Is anyone visiting here from a different country? Yes, we have a few. It's very interesting, religious liberty, and, and how it is. America's been a pioneer of it, and it's, it's great to see you here. Um, anyway, so let's go ahead. I think it's 10 o'clock, and um, let's go ahead and get started. I'd like to start with a word of prayer, if you could bow your heads. Dear Lord, I just ask that you would be with us here today. Lord, please um, anoint my lips. May I speak the words that you would have me to speak Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to look at religious liberty. And as I was looking at this, I realized that the way to understand it, you need to understand the, the, the world we live in. And the way to understand the world we live in, you kind of got to know how we got to where we are. And so I'm actually going to look back a long ways. Um, in, in these two present, the first two presentations that I'm going to be making, we're going to cover about 2,000 years of history in about two hours. So with that, we'll be looking at pagan Rome first, because pagan Rome transformed into papal Rome, but papal Rome uh, took much of what it does and what it did from pagan Rome. And the only way to understand papal Rome is to understand pagan Rome. So we're going to start by looking at pagan Rome. We'll look at papal Rome to see the world that the Reformation started in. The goal of this presentation is to see what was going on in the world. What was the world when the Reformation started? And then in our next presentation, we'll look at the Reformation and, and, and the, uh, the progress that was made in religious liberty. One other point that I'd like you to think about as we think about this, the world is about 6,000 years old. And if you really look, you're going to see that we've only had religious liberty for probably little over 150 years. That's not very long. Not very long at all. And many parts of the world don't have religious liberty even today. Uh, turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. I want to point a text out to you. It's one of those little books. It's easy to go over very quickly. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, it says this, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, Christ's coming, shall not, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, um, as Protestants, we traditionally uh, interpreted that to, to be the Antichrist power and the papacy. But let's keep reading. It says this, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you all these things. And now ye know that, now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his times. Now listen to this. When I, when I used to study this, I was always surprised. It says this, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. It's like, wow, this is already going on? 
It's like, Paul, you're, you're, you're jumping the gun. Isn't it a little bit future, right? And he says, but the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth or, 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 or holdeth back will hold back until he be taken out of the way. And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So, so this, this man of sin is already there, but we're just, he's being hidden. How does that, how does that make sense? Keep that in mind. I also want to show you another prophecy here. Um, turn with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 7. Looking here at Daniel chapter 7, this is one that is, we should be very familiar with. If you look here, um, I'm going to kind of skip through this fairly quickly, but um, Daniel chapter 7, verse 3, Daniel's having a vision, and he says, And four great beasts came out from the sea, diverse one from another. The first is like a lion, the second is like a bear, then the leopard. And then looking at verse 7, he starts to really pay attention here. After this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth, it devoured and break in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom all the three of the first horns were plucked up. And it goes on with this. But, but I, what I wanted to point out was this, this beast is there, and he's just he's stamping on the residue. What is this chapter about? I love looking at, at Daniel. I wish we had time to just study Daniel. But what's this chapter about? If you look at Daniel's prophecies, so many of them are set as a chiasm. And you can look here. Uh, chapter 7 has got, what, 20, uh, 28 verses? So if you look here in verse 14, it says, And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. If you look in that verse, count how many times it uses the word dominion. Dominion, dominion, dominion. This chapter is about dominion. And you see here this, this terrible beast is trying to take away dominion. He's fighting for dominion, and he's stamping on the residue or the remnant. So what is this? We know this as good students of prophecy. This is Rome, right? And we see a couple aspects of it. Iron. He's also got brass claws, right? Brass is more of the symbol of the metal of Greece. And if you look at Rome, it combined both aspects of its own Roman aspects. But, but Rome was very good at administration, but what was it administering? And where did it get its religion from? And you look at it, a lot of it comes from Greek. And you have a lot of Greek philosophy in there. Um, I'd like you to read something from Plato. Um, Plato had this to say about religion. He said, let this... Then be the law. No one shall possess shrines of the gods in private houses. And he who is found to possess them and perform any sacred rites not publicly authorized shall be informed against to the guardians of the law and let them issue orders that he shall carry his private rights to the public temples. And if he not obey, let them inflict a penalty until he comply. So for Plato, religion was a very public thing and it was, it was nothing that you could even do at home. 
Well, Rome had that same idea. They had this idea, this concept of a civil religion. And you had to go and sacrifice to the emperor. Um, Rome. Now, <clears throat> Rome's really interesting if you look at its religion and how it was, um, how it was organized. At the head of the Roman religion was a Pontifex Maximus. How many of you have heard the term Pontifex Maximus? And you know who uses the term today, correct? Well, back in 300 BC, there was a King Numa, and he developed and, and instituted the Pontifex Maximus. And the idea was a Pontifex, a pont, it comes from the term bridge. He's a bridge. He was actually a bridge to heaven. That's what the pontifex was, a bridge to heaven. That's, that's what a priest does. He bridges between earth and heaven. And the pontifex maximus is the head of all those priests. Um, he was a member of something called the College of the Pontiffs. And this was a group of these priests, these bridges to heaven. But what's interesting about them is they weren't actually members of any of the cults, any of the individual religions within the empire. They were there to see to it that people worshipped the gods properly. You see, they had this philosophy, and the philosophy went like this. If all of the gods are worshipped properly, then the gods will be happy, and they'll smile upon the empire, and then the empire will prosper. And so you had this college of pontiffs that wanted to be sure that everybody did their job uh, worshipping the, the empire, and they would get together and they would have a college. They called it a college and they would elect a Pontifex Maximus out of that. Does this sound familiar to anyone? It sounds a little bit like the College of the Cardinals. So what did the Pontifex Maximus do? What was he important for? Well, one of the things he did was he appointed priests of the individual cults. The other thing is he did is he inaugurated rulers. How many of you, you've heard the term inauguration? We inaugurate the President of the United States. Do any of you know where the term inauguration even comes from? It's based on this term augur. And inside the Roman Empire, you had augurs. And what did augurs do? Well, they would do things like they would sacrifice animals, and they would open them up, and they would look at the, at the intestines, and they would look at the liver, and decide whether it was a good day to go to war or not. Or they would watch and see the birds go by. And if the birds took off and the first flights they saw in the morning were going towards the enemy, then you attack. And if it's coming back, maybe you shouldn't go to war that day. And each political leader in Rome was invested with the power to read the augurs, to read the signs. And so when you became a leader or an emperor, you were inaugurated. And that was the system that they had there. Now, the, 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 um, the emperors, a lot of them, would actually hire augurs to do that part of the job for them. It, it got kind of split out. But anyway, so this is what we had in the Roman religious system. But even at this early time, the Christian leaders were already thinking about religious liberty. And I think it's interesting to, to just hear what they have to say because it sounds so similar to us today. There's a Christian by the name of Tertullian. Um, he was known as the first to formulate the Trinitarian doctrine. But it's interesting, he was never canonized. 
never made a saint by the church. But if you listen to what he had to say, you may understand why. He said this, Let one man worship God, another Jupiter. Now this is a Christian speaking. Let one lift suppliant hands to the heavens, another to the altar of the fetus. The fetus was a Roman god. For see that you do not give a further ground for the charge of irreligion by taking away religious liberty and forbidding free choice of deity, so that I may no longer worship according to my inclination, but am compelled to worship against it. Not even a human being would care to have unwilling homage rendered him. That's pretty forward thinking, don't you think? He said this, It's a fundamental human right, a privilege of nature, that every man should worship according to his own convictions. One man's religion neither harms nor helps another man. That sounds like the most enlightened uh, speakers on religious liberty that we have today, does it not? And that's Tertullian. He lived from 155 to 240 AD. This is from the very beginning. Well, in the Roman Empire, there were a lot of problems going on. Paganism was actually failing, and it was failing um, for these reasons. Um, it, didn't, it didn't really impress the morals um, the moral development of the, of the citizens. The women were essentially slaves. Uh, children were not valued. Uh, it can be said that they weren't loved even. Um, there was no way to progress morally. You, know, you look at the kids, one of the things about the kids is they valued theft. It was great because if you had a kid who was a thief, he'd be a great soldier. Isn't that great? So... It was in this environment that Christianity came. And you can actually look at the history of the empire and what's going on. And there were a lot of pagans, a lot of Romans that were looking to Israel. And you see like the centurions that come to Christ, they're looking for something better. And they see that in Judaism and they see that in Christianity. But Christianity caused its own problems. It was, it was said that if you were a Christian, you were disloyal to the state because Christianity had this problem. And, and the problem was this, is that, yeah, we're, we have the way. And so you don't worship all the other gods. And that caused an economic problem. And we see that, you know, you can see that in Acts. It's all like, hey, you come here, you preach Christianity, and nobody buys our idols anymore. So that was a problem. Um, and it really hurt. The, 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 there were other things that were sold. You know, you see there's one place in the Bible where they talk about in Acts where they talk about burning the magic books. You should sit down and do the math to see how much those magic books were worth. They were worth a lot of money. So Christianity was claimed to be disloyal to the state. They were accused of being communists because they share. You know, if you look in Acts, you see that. Um, they said that they were philosophically absurd, that it was a false theology. They even said that they were immoral. And what they would then do is they would then impute, or, or, or they, they would, um, that's a big fancy legal term, but they would, they would take their pagan practices and they'd say the Christians are doing it. But really it was just not true. And so every time there was a calamity, you'd blame the Christians. So if there's some kind of natural disaster, throw them to the lions. Let's have a fire tonight. And so around the empire, you had persecution coming. There were 10 main persecutions that are often talked about, um, Diocletian and some of these other emperors. And 
however, it was still kind of a, there would be moments of kind of general persecution, but it was mainly kind of a here and there patchwork around the empire when there's problems. Well, out of this um, problem, the empire started and be, started to become Christian. And as the empire started to become Christian, there were times of Christian toleration and then times of persecution. Um, sometimes you would have a, a Roman emperor that wanted to have follow Christ, and he wanted to have a Christian army. And so what would he do? He would find himself a river, and he'd march the, river, march the army through the river, and they were baptized. And then another emperor would come along, and he would have that same army, and he wanted it to be pagan. And so what would he do? He would bring each one of the soldiers and have them go by the idols and sacrifice to idols, and now they were pagans. So this is the kind of environment that was going on in, in the church. Well, you could be hauled before the magistrate and be accused of being a Christian, and you'd be given a choice. The choice would be, are you going to sacrifice to the idol, or are you going to refuse? And if you refuse, then you'll be killed, because you're being true to Christianity. Well, this created an interesting problem. There's the obvious problem that you see. But what do you do with the Christian who goes in front of the magistrate and sacrifices to the idol? And then, a few months later, Christianity is now the favored religion. And so he now says, I'm a Christian. What does the church do with that person? And you have that problem with just the the normal person. But what if that person is a bishop? What if that person is a leader of the church in a major city? What do you do with them? Well, what would happen often is that you would have, um, that the times would change, the the bishop would be called in, um, and he would be told that you would either um, be killed, or he could um, renounce Christianity, sacrifice to idols, and he would be spared. And so he would renounce, and he would be spared. And then there'd be the change, and within less than a year, he'd be back being the bishop of the church. Well, that creates a problem because, I mean, you have these martyrs going, and there's a lot of people that are sacrificing their lives, and yet the bishop, he gets to go back and forth like that. And so that started, especially in North Africa, a, a, a group of people, a sect. Um, every time you, you, we need to define our terms here. It's not bad to be a member of a sect, really. It's just a definitional thing. But any time um, you, you somehow separate yourself from the, the main group, you're determined to be a sect. That's all it means. And so what happened was a sect arose. They called them the Donatists. And the Donatists were protesting the fact that the bishop gets to sacrifice to idols, and then a year later, he's back being bishop again. And so they didn't like that. Um, Their big concerns were an impure membership, because people were going back and forth like this, and an impure leadership. Well, the Donatists then were prosecuted a lot. And, uh, yes, Oh, 
Excellent question. What is the time frame here? Donatists start to arise in the late 200s. So this is early on, 200s, 300s. Um, this is just before Constantine. And they continue on all the way through the time of Augustine. So they continue on for another two or 300 years. They have this problem. Um, but what they eventually came to believe, and as Constantine comes in and he is... is um, is, is baptized and becomes a Christian, um, this, th their issues became even bigger. And one of the things they said is that we don't want the secular administration in the church. Well, it's really interesting, as I was doing my research on the internet, um, how many of you heard about the Donatists before you came today? I'll bet you there's a couple. Good. Excellent. But I'm guessing that those of you that raised your hand are probably some kind of a specialist or have really taken the time to, to, to study this, and I, can, I, I, I think that's wonderful. Um, but honestly, I came across this book when I was studying the Donatists, and I want you to, I want you to, to, to listen to the title of the book. It's written in 1741, so this is like 1,300 years after the Donatists arose. It says this, a short history of the Donatists with an appendix in which the hypocritical Pharisee and schismatical Donatists are compared with the Methodists. That's amazing. 1,300 years later, they're complaining about the Donatists, and the whole reason why they even wrote this is because they wanted to say the Methodists are just a bunch of Donatists. Now, if you understand anything about Methodism, they're very close cousins to Adventism and, and, and are in our pedigree. So it's just, it's just very interesting to me that that would, that would go on for so long. So the Donatists were being martyred. Um, Constantine comes on. What happens? What happens in the empire? In 306, Constantine is going to the Milvian Bridge. Have you heard of the Milvian Bridge? And he has this, this, this dream, and he sees this sign in the sky, and he believes it says something to the effect of, in this conquer, and it's the sign of the cross. And so he paints red crosses on, on his soldiers, and he goes to, to battle, and he becomes a Christian. And in Christ, he conquers. Ooh, I'm not quite sure I want to say that. Um, let me tell you some things about him. Um, was he really a converted man? Probably not, at least. Now, we're not here to judge. I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to judge history, not Constantine. I have no idea. I hope to see him in the kingdom, but I don't know because I can't judge. The whole thing where he sees that sign, that kind of a sign is exactly what the augers used to go to battle. That's augury. All he saw was simple augury. In 321, he's still consulting the astrologers. He's still putting Apollo on the back of his coins. And he's actually requiring his leaders to be augurs. Remember how the Roman system is set up where all the politicians and the political leaders, they're all augurs? He keeps that all going. Nothing changes. Constantine's a really colorful guy. He's a really interesting guy. He's very intelligent. He's definitely driven by the love of glory. Um, he had lots of consumption. I mean, this guy loved to have a party and loved to have a, a lot of money and all the nicer things in life. Um, 
All of his favorites were corrupt. He had a lot of corrupt taxation. Um, he would execute people on a whim. Just, yeah, you want him killed, go ahead, kill him. Uh, that kind of a thing. Uh, the interesting thing that kind of struck me as I was reading about him is the guy liked to color his hair bright colors. And he also liked to wear really fancy clothes. And as you read this description, it, it sounds, he sounds kind of effeminate, actually. Um, he liked to have um, a profusion of gems and pearls, collars, bracelets, and all of his silk robes embroidered with flowers. Now, he was baptized, but he was baptized on his deathbed. Why was he baptized on his deathbed? Because when you're baptized, all of your sins are washed away. Only thing is, he didn't die right away. He recovered. And so then he had to do penance for the rest of his sins, for the rest of his life. But anyway, he took on the title of Pontifex Maximus. He was the Pontifex Maximus. I want to read this a little bit about the empire and um, um, what happened. It says this, no sooner, this is, this is written by, I'm going to read excerpts out of a, uh, 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 a Methodist church historian. And what he has to say, I think, is really interesting. He says, no sooner had the first decade of the fourth century passed than one of the most critical periods in the entire history of the church was introduced. The imperial opposition, which had been enforced for three centuries against Christianity with only varying severity, now ceased. And the new religion became a pronounced object of the patronage and friendship of the state. This strange and unnatural relation was far more dangerous, as later events sadly proved, to, to the life, doctrine, and polity of the church than even the heartless persecutions of Nero, Decius, or Diocletian. For the church, like many individuals, can more easily accomplish its mission against declared opposition. This sounds a lot like great controversy, does it not? The reason why I want to read it from, from this account here is I want us to know, you know, sometimes we're, we're told today, oh, you lousy Adventists, you're like, you're like stuck thinking in like 18th century, 19th century kind of thought, you know. We're not unique. What I am reading here, this was the opinion of Protestantism. He goes on to say this, the church now leaned on the political arm. Previously, it had enjoined the inestimable privilege of relying for its existence and growth purely on the moral forces. But now that it received the proffer of support from the state, the temptation was strong to accept it and shape its new life in harmony with it. As Bryce says, to frame herself the model of the, to frame herself upon the model of secular administration. And that's exactly what happened. You know, I told a little bit about the Pontifex Maximus, but if you study out the old ancient Roman religion, it really is duplicated into the Christian church at this time said this, it was gratifying to the Christians who had, yet, who had as yet no experience of the danger of leaning on the political power for aid to find their councils presided over by an emperor, their enemies arraigned for punishment, their institutions established by supreme decree, 
and funds supplied by the imperial treasury. You know, we as Adventists, this is a, this is a lesson for us too. I want to be careful with what I say here, but we need to be careful as some of our members might become powerful. If we know powerful people in governments, that we don't rely upon them. We, re- we rely upon the moral force of our religion and upon Christ. It says this, this great change brought the church into subjugation to the state. And listen to this. This is so true. When the first Christian emperor, that's Constantine, professed faith in the gospel, he had no idea of abandoning any of his prerogatives to the church. He's the Pontifex Maximus, and he's not giving anything of that up. But to control its life and administration after the manner of his pagan predecessors in dealing with the prevailing faith of their subjects. You know, if you look at Constantine, what was he doing? They would have these uh, conferences, like the one in Nicaea. Beautiful place. Dave and I have had the opportunity to be there. But he presided over it. What qualified him to preside over these conferences? Nothing. His title is Pontifex Maximus. And so this came into the church, and it created all kinds of problems. It's been said that the church conquered the empire. But you know what? By reversing this declaration, he would have approached more nearly the fact. It wasn't the church that conquered the empire. It was the empire that conquered the church. He said one more thing. Had there been no absorption of the church by the state, the formulization of Christian doctrine and the evangelization of the nations would have been the natural and speedy mission of the church. Protestantism would never have been a necessity for the very evils that it arose to correct would not have existed. If Constantine would have never converted, if the church wouldn't have run in, with open arms into the empire, the administration of the empire, we wouldn't have even needed a Protestant Reformation. There's another interesting um, thing. You know, you study... I'm a, I'm a big student of Bible prophecy, and if you get to know me, you'll find out that, that I love reading Daniel, and I love reading Revelation... And one of the things that, um, that uh, uh, you see in Daniel chapter 2 is, w- what do you see? You see the, the, the legs of iron, and they go right to the very end, do they not? But, but Rome fell, right? Doesn't that create a little problem? Listen to this. I think this is really interesting. This is one of the older historians. His name is Gregorius. He lived, um, I, I wish I knew the dates for him. You'll have to forgive me, but he's an older one. He said this, the religious creed of the Germans. Now, who are the Germans? The Germans, you know, a lot of times when we, when we study history and we see these, the, the, the tribes that come in and conquer Rome, right? The Vandals, the Visigoths, the, the different... Well, especially when you see the term Goth, that, you may as well just write German. Okay? These tribes, a lot of them are Germans. A lot of the Germans came in and occupied the Italian peninsula. Says this, the religious creed of the Germans, their hierarchy, the language of their religions, their festivals, their apostles, their saints were all Roman 
or defined from a Roman source. Thus, eventually it came to pass that the Germans, the rulers of the Latin race, with which they became intermingled in Italy, restored the empire which had been previously destroyed. By this restoration was essentially the work of the Roman church, which required the reestablishment of her prototype as a necessary element of her international character and a guarantee of the universal religion. Another historian goes on to say, he who ends his work in 476 and he who begins his work in 476 can neither of them understand in its fullness the abiding life of Rome, neither can fully grasp the depth and power of the truest of proverbial savings, sayings that speaks of Rome as the eternal city. So Rome goes on. Even though Rome falls, it actually goes on. And the prophecy of Daniel 2 is true. So, you'd think that coming from all of the persecution, that the persecution that the the Christian church would not persecute. It's just lived through this, right? But no. Um, It's been said, and I don't know that we actually know this, but since it's a historical, uh, something that's been said out there, I'll go ahead and toss it out there. I think there could have been some before that. But it's been said that the first martyr created by the church was Priscillian in 385. That's not very much after Constantine, right? It's only like 50 50 years. So what was the rationale for this persecution? Other than it was based on the same system that the pagan Romans had, what what was the biblical rationale? Well, they had a text that they liked to read. It's John 15, verse 6. If a man abide not on me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. That was their creed for burning. Now, one thing in their defense is that burning people was kind of a common thing during this era. Uh, You could be burned for being any kind of a felon. I mean, this wasn't just for heretics. So how would they go about, how would the inquisitions, these Roman inquisitions work? Well, first of all, the witnesses' names were not mentioned ever in the presence of the accused. So if you were being accused of being a Christian, and you say, well, who says this? They would never tell you who. Um, The witnesses could, and and that also implies something else, because if they're not going to tell you who, then guess who isn't present either? The witness. So they hear the witnesses outside of your presence. The accused never gets to hear the witness, never gets to find out who's, who's talking against them. It says the witness may be of any kind or background. It doesn't matter if they're a criminal. Um, and it's interesting, they said, you know, if the accused um, denies the accusation, put them on the rack. Put them on the rack, let's find out. <laughs> you know, the rack where they stretch you all out and pull all of your joint out of, out of, out of place. Um, if anyone tries to give the accused legal assistance, you excommunicate them from the church. Anyone who supports the accused will be penalized. Those who recant will put them in jail for life. Isn't that nice? We're not going to burn them. And if you recall, if you take back your recantation, then we burn you right away. That is the, that is the formula of the Inquisition, um, of, the, of, of, of the, the judicial system that they had for going after the, uh, the accused. 
Well, <clears throat> we are covering a very large port of, <clears throat> very large section of history, so forgive me, I'm going to skip very far ahead quickly, and I want to take you to the year 12,005. 12,005. It's quite a while ago, but it's moving right along. The Archbishop of Canterbury had died. Yeah, what did I say? Yeah, that's that. No, no, we're not. Uh. <laughs> You're like, whoa, he's taking me all the way to like, oh, we'll be in heaven by then. <laughs> 1205, Archbishop of Canterbury dies. So, so I want to I talk about this time frame. We're moving into the kingdom of England. And we can see this is a, this is a very instructive um, story that I'm going to tell you about, A, the fight for religious liberty. This is really important on that. And B, just the methods, the methods of the papacy trying to to, to exert her power. So the Archbishop of Canterbury dies, and so the English bishops appoint another one. They get together, and they appoint another one within 24 hours. They waste absolutely no time. Now, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury? He is the leader of the Christian church in England. There's nobody higher than him. This is the, this is the, the most important ecclesiastical position in England. Well, there's a king on the throne, King John, and he, People don't really like him very well. Um, he's, kind of a, he's kind of a jerk. He's just very self-centered, and he just doesn't have the, uh, the, the support of the people. Well, he's enraged by this because he wants to appoint the bishop. And so he does. He appoints his own bishop. Um, well, what are you going to do now? You've got two bishops, and you can't decide who's going to lead the church. So what do you do? You appeal to Rome. And so the two different parties, they went to Rome and they said, hey, look, who's going to be bishop? Is it going to be us, the, the ones that the, 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 the clergy appointed, or is it going to be the ones that the king appointed? Well, the pope says, are you kidding me? I'm the one that gets to appoint the bishop. And so the pope appoints his own bishop. Well, you can imagine that doesn't make anybody happy back in England. King John is enra- enraged. Um, And so what does he do? He expels all of the clergy that supported the Pope. He kicks them out of the country. Well, the Pope, he's upset about that, so he places England under interdict. You have to understand what interdict means. Interdict means no salvation for the English subjects. I mean, now we're done. There's no more church service here. There's no way to get to heaven except through the church. And, and, and we're done. There's no salvation for the English subjects. No church services of any kind. You want to get married? Sorry, ain't going to happen. You want to have your sins forgiven? Don't come here. You're going to die? Well, don't get buried here. I mean, we're nothing. We're closed. And then what they try to do, all the, all the clergy then, they just go to the people and they say, you know, you need to put on your black clothes cover your head in ashes, and mourn. This is a time of mourning. And so England is in this place. Well, that doesn't work. So the next step is the Pope decides, okay, I'm going to excommunicate the king. So the Pope then excommunicates the king. That means the king's going to go to hell. Um, 
But it also means something else. It also means all of the subjects of England, they don't have to obey the king either. And then the Pope goes to the king of France and says, go to war with England. And the king of France says, man, I don't really want to do that. And the the Pope convinces him, though. And so France goes to war with England. Well, King John is upset about all this. You can see this is a big problem, and so he caves. And he goes and he meets with Pandolf. He's the papal legate. This is the guy who represents the pope in England. And he says, you know, please forgive me. I'll do whatever you want, right? And so the king has to bow down on his knees. And at this point, he recognizes the pope as his lord. And it's a very technical thing. It's a feudal system. And so the pope becomes his liege lord. And so that means the king serves purely at the, at the request, the behest, the, the pleasure of the Pope. Well, Pandolf takes the king's crown off of his head while the king is there um, bowing in front of him on his knee. He takes the king's uh, crown off. He tosses it on the ground. He gets up. He walks around. He kicks it around for a little while. Then he picks it back up, sticks it on his head, and he says, okay, you can do this, but you're going to pay me 1,000 marks every, every year. And so... Um, That's what happened. Well, that created a problem. The lords of the land realized that their king was now no longer king of England. He was just a pawn of the papacy. So what did they do? What did they do? Well, England kind of basically goes into a civil war at this point. And the, um, the barons come, and they basically are taking over London. And it becomes a very famous moment in history. They meet the king on the field in Runnymede. And there they present the king with a document. And that document is the Magna Carta. Now, some of you may have heard of Magna Carta, but so many of us, especially here in America, we just don't teach Magna Carta or why it exists or or anything about it. But basically, this is the very first time anybody's ever approached a king or a ruler with a document and an ultimatum saying, you sign it and you be ruled by it. You know what that is? That's a constitution. That's a constitution, and now we've moved. Do you see, because of this fight with the Pope, we have now established constitutionalism for the very first time, and we've moved from just being ruled by kings to being ruled by laws. And so what did they do? Let me read you just a little bit. One of the things, the very first thing they asked for, they said, first, that we have granted to God, and by this present charter have confirmed for us and our heirs in perpetuity that the English church shall be free and shall have its rights undiminished and its liberties unimpaired. That's the very first thing they asked for. They said, you know what? The Church of England, the Archbishop of Canterbury, is not going to be appointed by the Pope. And they're really saying it's not by you, King, either, because you are a vassal of the Pope, unless you sign this. And then it goes on, and, he, and this other one point here is really, really critical. 
says this, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any way, nor will we proceed with force against him or send others to do so. Now listen to this except by the lawful judgment of his equals and by the law of the land. That's a trial by jury. They're going to be judged by their peers. And it's by the law of the land, not just some accusation. To no one will we sell, to no one deny or delay right or justice. You don't bribe your way in and out of the system either. They also add things about the penalty has to suit the crime and no taxes without the general consent of the realm. You know, I looked at the U.S. Constitution and basically what they have there is the Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, and Eighth Amendments of the Bill of Rights. So anyway, King John signs it under duress and what's the first thing he does? He calls up Pope Innocent and says, hey, I need your help. So Pope reads it, and he's enraged because his power's gone, because now the king is ruled by this Magna Carta, right? So he issues a bull, and he annuls it. That causes a real civil war. Magna Carta ends up having to be issued three more times before it becomes the law of the land. And sadly, the Pope ended up still making appointments. There still were a lot of papal taxes. You know, it's interesting. Everything that, that, that the church was doing was creating taxes. Um, if you were going to elevate someone to a bishop, um, he had to have his bishop robe. You had to buy the robe from Rome, and it had to be blessed by the Pope, and that would cost you uh, six to 10,000 pounds. And you know, remember, too, I mean, this is probably literally pounds of, of these things. We don't have any clue as to just how valueless our money has become. I mean, this was a lot more money than you think. Oh, and if someone from England was going to become a saint, well, he had to be canonized. And you had to send 100,000 pounds to Rome for a canonization of a saint. So anyway, <clears throat> Parliament's response to all of this, they kicked out the clergy, but they did something else that I thought was interesting. They outlawed anyone from bringing a papal bull into England on pain of death. <laughs> Someone brought it. He was convicted. He didn't realize there had been a, a law against all this other kind of stuff. And the chancellor of England, who was, he said, you know what, okay, we won't kill you, but you get out of here right now. Magna Carta became really, really important to the Reformation in another way. How many of you have heard of the name of John Wycliffe? He is called this morning star of the Reformation. And basically, oh, I wish I had time, but we are so close to out of time, and there's a couple other points I want to make. Wycliffe took all of the theories of Magna Carta approximately uh, 150, 200 years later. And when England was working on, on fighting for its, its independence, this is the early, you know, this is before... Martin Luther. Martin Luther's 1517. We haven't had that yet. But England is working towards its independence. And Wycliffe took, took the principles of Magna Carta and he showed that they were all biblical and that they should stand against the papacy. Well, that did not make him popular. 
um, with the Pope, and so he lost his position, and he got into academia. But you know what he did because of that? He translated the Bible for the first time into a local language. It hadn't been till way back, like two or 300 AD. It had been over 1,000 years since anybody had the Bible in a language that they could understand. This is what uh, a papist had to say about Wycliffe. Christ, and you've you got to listen carefully, because this is their whole attitude. Christ delivered his gospel to the clergy and doctors of the church. Christ delivered his gospel to the clergy and the doctors of the church that they might administer to the laity and to weaker persons according to the state of the times and the wants of men. But this master, John Wycliffe, translated it and thus laid it more open to the laity and to women who could read. And in this way, the gospel pearl is cast abroad and trodden under foot of swine. Wycliffe did this. This is what he really did. Wycliffe made the Bible, the Magna Carta, or the Constitution of the church. He died of old age before he could be martyred. The papists couldn't deal with that, so they banned his books. They burned his books. They dug up his body. They burned his body, threw his ashes into the river. That is the world... That is the world, that is the state of religious liberty when the Reformation started. It was into this kind of place that Martin Luther came and put his 95 thesis on the wall. It was this kind of a papacy that declared itself the greatest ruler on earth. Oh, I have a quote here, and I had it out of order, and I really want to read it. Give me one second. We'll have to live without it. Let me just tell you this. The papacy would go on errands. They would declare crusades. You know, we think of the crusades as being just things going to try to recapture the Holy Land. But there were crusades inside Europe, too. And they would go and try to recapture cities from, you know, I don't want to use the word Protestant because this is before Luther but for all practical purposes, Protestants, they call them heretics. They would go to cities, I believe it was Toulouse. They went to that city, and there were a lot of people there who were anti-papist. And they were resisting. And they asked the, uh, they, they were talking amongst themselves, the, the, the crusaders, they were talking among themselves, so, so who do we kill? I mean, we're going to go in there. How are we going to tell, how are we going to tell the, the, the uh, the, right, the good people from the bad people. You know, how do we tell the heretics from the, from the good Roman Catholics, from the papists? You know what the response was? Kill them all. God will know his own. This is the kind of world that was, that was existing at this time. 
we talk a lot about um, Europe. And what I've talked about here is primarily Europe. But there's one other thing that I think that, that bears mention. Um, I'm almost hesitant to, to do this, but I think that it's something that, that, that we need to know. And it's something that you should have in the back of your mind, especially with some of the things I'll, I'll, I'll mention in the next, in the next presentation. In Europe, the papists were killing the heretics as fast as they could. But in Islam, they were killing all the Christians as fast as they could. A lot of times we hear about, um, well, let's just say this. It was dark times everywhere to be a Christian. I want to end the couple Bible verses here. I want to look at Daniel. Let's look first at Daniel 8, verse 23. If you can turn in your Bibles there. It says this. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to a full, listen to this, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. This is talking about the little horn power. A king of fierce countenance understanding dark sentences. I believe that this understanding of dark sentences, there's really only two ways you can interpret it. You can interpret it as understanding occult practices, or you can interpret it as as political intrigue. Within the papacy and the time we're looking at, we see both. You see it in the importation of the Roman religion in, and you see it in the example of things like what we saw where they're going after um, England when they do the Magna Carta. I mean, we just saw all the political intrigue right there. Turn with me, if you will, to Daniel 11. Daniel 11 says this, moving into verse 31. We can really start in verse 30. I don't like the way the, the verse separations are. Um, I think it's a little bit confusing. I like to start in in the middle of verse 30. It says, um, talk, but we'll start at the beginning. For the ships of Chittim shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return. But listen to this. Now, and have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. Now, without trying to, to pick it apart and see what all this stuff means exactly, let's just get a feel for what's going on here. It says in verse 31, And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. Look at what Wycliffe did by translating the Bible. Wasn't he instructing many? Yet they shall fall by the sword 
and by flame and by captivity, and by spoil many days. Now that by spoil is an old term, um, but it's one that we ought to know. Have you ever heard of getting the spoils of war? What does it mean to get the spoils of war? It's the money. It's the loot. And one of the things that the Pope loved to do, when he would excommunicate someone, like when he excommunicated King John, he goes to, he goes to the king of France and says, go take all his stuff, right? And so by spoil, he was constantly taking away all the earthly goods of people who, he, who opposed him. And it wasn't so much that, how can I put it? That is the incentive to do, to do the Pope's bidding. Now, when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries, and some of them understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that is determined shall be done. It's a lot of ground we covered here. When we come back, I hope that you'll come, we're going to see now out of this, this, this terrible place that the Christian church has come, how the Reformation dawned and the struggles that went through and how we got religious freedom. So I really, really invite you to come back. As we see more clearly, I believe we will see that the problems and the issues that we just talked about here and the problems and the issues of the Reformation are the true religious liberty problems that we will be facing in the future. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the promises and the prophecies you've given us. And Lord, we thank you for loving us and for supporting those that have gone before. We thank you for the martyrs. Lord, I pray for each one of us that we will learn the lessons of the past. And Lord, may we be as dedicated to you as to any of these martyrs that have gone before. Lord, I pray that you will go with us, be with us here at GYC. May we all be blessed and may we take a blessing to others as we leave. We ask this in Jesus' name. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.